I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus chapter 15. We continue to worship by looking at God's Word. It's always a joy to um, to be able to preach God's Word. It's also a heavy, weighty thing, and so I understand that, doing it every week. And so I'm thankful for Kenny being able to fill in and to preach, and I know he's capable at doing that, and he's also willing, and being willing is such a big deal. Um, so I'm really thankful for Kenny and his serving us in that way. While I was gone, um, as we continue on in Exodus, we've just come through this reality of this amazing, epic moment of the people of God being brought through the Red Sea. Like, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, like the actual movie, The Ten Commandments, pales in comparison to what I read, right? When I read this passage of Scripture and I, I really start to get it in my mind, like, you imagine the if you've ever seen the old movie it comes you know they show it every year a couple of times and they show it like on repeat right on TNT or TCM or whatever it is and um, when you watch it you're like get to this point the Red Sea's being parted and back then that was that was crazy effects for the day right and you watch it and you're like whoa that's pretty amazing and you realize they did it by like in in a trough that was like this big right and then they they filmed it. And it looks amazing, it looks really great, but it's nothing compared to what was actually experienced. And when you read it in Scripture, you see the power of God just jumping off the pages of Scripture. And as we continue on into Exodus 15, there's a response to that that happens. There's a natural, visceral response to God's power for those who are by faith people. For those who are faithless people, the power of God brings fear, right? Causes us to shudder and to want to run. But for those of us who are by faith in Jesus' people, we see the power of God and it brings us in. brings us into worship. It brings us in to want to draw near to Him because we know He is good. And so we've been reading through Exodus. We've been studying through Exodus. And we have to remember this, that Exodus is history, but it is so much more than that. It's not just mere history. It all happened. And it happened in a time and a place. And it happened like it says in Scripture but it's more than that. And that's one of the reasons, that just as kind of an aside as I get started, that I want to invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock. It's really important for us to come back. This is, this is not a typical growth group setting. We want everybody to come back. If you don't have a growth group, come. If you have a growth group, come. And the reason is, if you have kids in the youth group, definitely come. If you don't have kids in the youth group, definitely come. Okay? Bring your kids. Sit with your kids. We're going to be learning tonight if we can even trust our Bibles. The world is going to tell us the Bible is just a series of myths. It's just a series of stories. And they're great. They'll teach us some lessons and they're good reading, but they're not God's Word and they're not trustworthy. We're going to look at the Bible itself and and learn how we can know that we can trust God's Word so that when we read what's happening here in Exodus, we know that this is exactly what happened and it's exactly what God wants us to know today as His people so that, as Paul would tell us, all of these things were written so that you and I would not do what they did. But we would learn from their mistakes, that we would grow, that the truth of what's happening in Exodus here is a truth that's for all believers, that's for us as well. So we're going to read history, but we're not just reading mere history. We're reading an outline of how God saves and sanctifies His people, how He redeems and ransoms and rescues and makes a people for Himself, how He's restoring His image and glory through His presence with His people. Exodus is an outline of the life 
of the redeemed people of God. You can think of it this way. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, right? They were in slavery and bondage in Egypt to Pharaoh, to the powers of this world, to the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in His mercy, He took them out. He delivered them from the domain of darkness and He brought them through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea and He provides for them as they worship Him. He provides His Word and He provides a meal for them. He provides bread and water for them. He provides everything that they need on their pathway to what? A promised land where He would be their God and be with them and they would be His people. Is this not our story? This is the story of all redeemed people. This is the way God has saved, is saving, and will save His people. In Exodus 14, God has ransomed and redeemed His people. He ransoms them from the possession of Pharaoh and the possession of sin and death through the Passover and through this Exodus out of Egypt. But now, He's also redeemed them from the power of Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh and his armies have come after them and the people say, "Are you bring us out here to die? What are you doing to us, Moses? And God in his power redeems them and takes them through the water and the water flows back over Pharaoh and his armies. And their response, their response in all of this is what? Thanks, God. Fist bump? No, they had the only appropriate response. They sing. They sing, they worship, because He is their God. So I want you to follow along in Exodus chapter 15 as you see the natural, the appropriate response to God's work of redemption. Look at what happens. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Before we get too far into this, I want to make sure you understand, we're going to be looking at the appropriate response to God's power and His provision for His people when God rescues and redeems people, how we're supposed to respond, and that response is worship. But you cannot worship God unless this word is true. My God. My salvation that He is yours and you are His. There's a personal relationship, personal aspect to this relationship with God, to this worship, to the living God of the universe. We must have a personal relationship with Him in order for there to be real worship. It's why Moses and the people are saying, the Lord is my strength. They're looking at each other. It says Moses and the people saying this. Can you just imagine? I don't know who wrote it and if it was on the spot. I don't know. But maybe they're all trying to sing words. I don't know. Have you ever seen those plays where like you ever tried to do those things where you're trying to mimic one another at the same time? It's really interesting when that happens. I don't know how this happened. We don't have evidence of how it happened. We just know this is Forever put down as God's word that this is what we're to remember the people singing. And this is what they said. The Lord is my salvation. They're encouraging one another with this truth. The, the truth that the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. You cannot worship Him. You cannot exalt Him as God until you know Him as God personally. And that personal knowledge of God as your Savior, as your salvation, as your God, comes only through Jesus Christ, the one who redeems us, the one who is our full and final 
Passover lamb who brings us out of slavery and bondage to sin and death, who brings us through the waters, who brings us into now this moment of understanding our redemption, that Jesus himself is fully and finally the one who has made us the people of God. This is what's happening. They're becoming the people of God. They're becoming what they were designed to be. They weren't designed to be slaves in Egypt. They were designed to be the people of God. They were designed to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. And now God is accomplishing that. He will be their God. And they will be His people. The Lord is a man of war, verse 3. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, just like you promised, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. Can you just picture that? Like the, the language here is so fantastic in this song. The blast of your nostrils. You see the wind coming and the waters piling up. The floods stood up in a heap high. The deeps congealed to give a foundation so they weren't going to be flowing back over the people of Israel. The enemy said, well, that looks pretty solid. If they can get through, I'll just pursue them. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. (laughs) They said that when you opened your mouth, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The the Philistines are afraid now of your people and of you. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. They're afraid too. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Where they're going, God is preparing the way. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. God will keep you, your people, you will keep your people, God, secure until you put them where you want them to be on your holy mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amazing hymn. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Richard was telling me his first mission trip ever to Africa. His favorite thing was going to church. When he went to church, one of the ladies started singing. And when she started singing, everybody else got in a line behind her. They just danced through the whole church. So that's what we're going to do right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I told him one thing that may never happen at OPBC. Um, but he said it was just un- and I have no inhibition whatsoever. It was God is great. God has done this for us. God is glorious. He's majestic in His holiness. we got to worship. 
You can think of it this way. They weren't singing. They were singing. Right? Like every bit and ounce of their energy and their ability is put into singing this song. Miriam leads the song. The sister of Aaron took the tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You see, worship through singing is the appropriate response to God's work of redemption in our lives. God's work of redemption brings about worship through singing. This is appropriate for all of us. Why do we sing? Why do we sing? Do we sing because we like the song? Do we sing because we like the style? Do we sing because we feel like it? Well, what this text is showing us is right after God redeems and rescues His people, they begin to sing as a response. Worship through singing is the appropriate response to God's work of redemption in our lives. Could you put that up on the screen? Thank you. Why is this song of Moses important to us today? Like It's here in the text. In fact, some commentators would say it doesn't seem to fit. I think it fits perfectly because it seems to be the natural and supernatural reality of what happens. When God does something great in our lives and we see him move in power, what is your reaction? As people of God, our reaction is to go, wow, God is amazing. I want to proclaim that God is amazing. And singing is the most natural way we do that. Singing is the best way to proclaim how great someone is, how great something is. Poetry and song. Our whole culture says poetry and song is the best way to emote. And when our emotions are actually engaged with who God is, it's a beautiful marriage that comes out in this song. It's this. We can have really good theology, but good singing is theology in action. It's theology in the heart married together. That's why just flip through those brown books. Those are called hymnals, by the way. Um, just flip through those brown books every once in a while. There's some bad hymns in there. We don't sing them. But there's some good hymns in there. And I'd encourage you to flip through and, and read through this deep theology that's this theology that's married to the heart. This is what singing is. So I asked the question, why do we sing? I think maybe the better question is, why don't we sing? Why, why don't we sing? Well, maybe you're one of those people who says, believe me, Brad, you don't want to hear me sing. Well, there's nowhere in this text that says Miriam had a good voice. Or that any of the, it says all the ladies went out with her. All the women picked up tambourines and they started. Here's the good news. When you got tambourines, nobody's paying attention to how good your voice is anyway. Which is maybe one of the reasons why we need to get better at clapping as a congregation, right? You may sit here and you may say, I, I, I don't really like the style of the song. Nobody's complaining about Moses' lyric writing. Nobody's complaining about the tambourine playing. I'm sure there was some guy somewhere who was like the tambourine. Devil's instrument. Right? No, they're worshiping. Why? Because they remember they've just seen God move in power. Have we too easily forgotten God moving in power in our lives? That He is our rock and our salvation. 
They worship. They sing because it's the appropriate response. Why is this song important? Because it's the first song documented in Scripture. It's where theology that we've been learning the entirety of Scripture up to this point starts to meet the heart. And the song is beautiful and glorious, but it's also, and I want you to catch this, it's also a song that you and I are going to need to learn because we're going to be singing it for eternity. This song of God's redemption is a song you and I are going to be singing forever. If you hold your place there in Exodus 15 and flip over to Revelation chapter 15, there's a really fascinating moment here. As everything comes to its culmination in the book of Revelation, there's a really fascinating moment. It says this in Revelation chapter 15 verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. So think of this for just a second. Here's what's happening. They're standing next to a sea. Sound familiar? They've just defeated the dragon. Right? The beast is gone. The beast is now defeated. There's There's this beautiful moment now where the defeat of the enemy has happened. And what happens? They sing the song of, what does your text say? Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O God, of the, our King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The fact is, Moses' song of redemption is a song that should be repeated in our hearts as we remember the redemption that comes only through Jesus Christ. That He is glorious. That He is the King. That He is our God. That we belong to Him. Worship through singing is the appropriate response to God's work of redemption. But what kind of worship? What kind of worship were we talking about? We, we have a model here of what worship should look like. Worship of God by redeemed and ransomed people should not just be our own ideas. It should declare what God has done. Worship of God by redeemed and ransomed people should declare what God has done. What has He done? Look at the text. Look at the text. Could you put that up on the screen, please? In the text, what do we have here? He fought for His people. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Look at all the actions of God. You can just go verse by verse by verse by verse and see God has done this. God has done this. Pharaoh's chariots and his host He cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. God fought for His people and defeated His enemies. God not only did that, by defeating His enemies, He also saved His people. That The people walked through on dry land. He stretched out His right hand. The earth swallowed up everybody else. But they made it through the, the waters. God saved His people and continues to work to save His people. He's he's allowed fear now to seize the people of the lands around them so that the people of God will be secured. God has fought for His people, defeated His people, saved His people, and He's providing for His people. And ultimately, He's going to take them to the land that He's promised. He's going to place them right where He wants them. This is what God has done. Our, Our worship should declare... What God has done. Not what we do, not what we feel, not how we are kind of coming in feeling today. Think about it. If you walk through the doors of this building when we all gather together, 
And I said, well, why aren't you singing? Well, I don't really feel like it. Well, I get that. But you better get it straight quick. Because worship is a requirement of the believer. It's the appropriate response, but it's also the requirement of all people. Worshiping God is not something that we get to choose whether we do it or not. We're to worship Him for what He's done. There's a great old hymn written by Isaac Watson, 1705. It's called, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. Just listen to the words. This is, this is what we're talking about. Our, o God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. You can look at what He's done in the past, and you can remember what He's done, and you can trust Him for the future. You can see how He's protected you and He's provided for you in the middle of the stormy blast and that He is your home. He is your security from this point forward. Under the shadow of Thy throne, Thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is Thine arm alone and our defense is sure. I just wonder why we, why we get so defensive so easily. And we want to hold on to what's ours so much. Could it be that we want to be our own defense instead of God being our defense. One thing they're not doing in this song in Exodus 15 is going, look how we made it through the water, everybody. You notice that? They're like, good job getting through the water, everybody. You really walked on dry land really well. None of that brotherhood of backslapping is happening here. They're saying, look what God did. Even us getting through on the dry land was a work of God. We should be proclaiming, declaring what God has done. Which leads us to this. What God has done reveals God's character and who He is. Worship of God by redeemed and ransomed people focuses also on who God is. Look back at the text. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is strong and mighty. Your right hand, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. He is our strong and mighty God. We read here in verse 3, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. He is a God of war in His just wrath. We do not like to think of God in this way. That God is a God of wrath. Like we want... Soft, cuddly God. We don't like prickly God. Right? We don't like God who's hard at the edges and has sharp edges to him. We want round God that we can come and hold. We want, we want body pillow God, right, that makes us comfortable at night. That's what we want, right? We want weighted blanket. Anybody have a weighted blanket? Some of you got them for Christmas, and you just praise the Lord for that weighted blanket. I, my wife got a weighted blanket for Christmas so that she doesn't steal my weighted blanket. If you don't have a weighted blanket, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, get a weighted blanket. It will change your life. But you want to be snuggled by God, right? We want God to be close and near so that we can just hug on. But He is dangerous. He's holy. He's a consuming fire. But look, look at some of the words in verse 7 that are said about God. Verse 6, He shatters the enemy. Verse 7, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your... Wait, that word shouldn't be there if we're talking about God. Fury? Like, 
That just says to me, when I think about fury, I think about uncontrolled rage. Anybody else, when I hear the word fury, I think uncontrolled rage. That's not what we're talking about. See, our problem with God and His wrath is we're no good at anger. So every time we think about God and His anger, we compare it to our anger. and We think, well, if God is angry and He's infinitely angry and I get angry and I can't control it, don't want to be around God. No, He is completely fair and just. Let me make sure you understand this. God hates sin. Hates it. And you and I need a God who hates sin. Because by hating sin, here's how much he hates sin. He poured out his fury and wrath against sin on Jesus, his son. That's how important God's wrath towards sin is. Because he didn't just say, hey, try really hard. And those of you who get it right and more right than everybody else, I'll let into heaven. No, instead he said, I hate sin so much that I'm going to send my son who will keep the law perfectly and I'm going to pour out my wrath towards sin on him so that you can get all of his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. We need a God who hates sin. We need a God of just wrath who will not be mocked. Look at, look at this. He's not going to be mocked by his enemies. The enemy, verse 9, said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. Hey, that looks really secure in there on that dry land. I will go through the dry land and I will overtake them. And God instead blew all the water back on top of them. God's not going to be mocked. Why? Look at verse 11. Because who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? He is strong and mighty. He is a God of war who will not be mocked. He is majestic. He is holy. He is seated on His throne. He is one who when you would see Him and one day will see Him face to face, you will know He is God. That's how majestic He is. There will be no questioning that you are in the presence of God when you see Him face to face. It wasn't like that when God took on flesh and walked among us. It wasn't like that when Jesus humbled Himself and took the form of a servant and walked around and there was nothing about Him that would cause anybody to admire Him or to see majesty in Him. He wasn't walking around with a halo behind His head like all the Renaissance paintings. Oh, I'm Jesus. That wasn't happening in Jesus' day. He was mistaken for everything but God. And when He was beaten to a pulp, And when he was bruised and whipped for you and for me, he didn't even look human. There was nothing about him that would cause people to be drawn to him in all of his majesty. No, he took the form of a servant. But there's one who is coming when he returns who will come as a lion, majestic in his holiness. And we will not mistake his glory this time. This is the the beauty of who God is. This is why we worship Him. This is why we sing He is holy. He is eternal. He is the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. And after all of that, because that's enough for a song. That's enough for 10,000 songs. That's enough for 10 million songs. That's enough for songs for the rest of our existence. For all of eternity, we could sing about His strength, about His just wrath, about His majesty and His holiness and His eternal nature. But look at how the song ends. Verse 13. 
You have led in your steadfast love. Oh, the beauty of that. That the God who is mighty and strong and majestic and holy and eternal is also the God who loves His people. He turns right back around and comes back to the Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. God has saved us and loves us. You see, true worship of God starts with a proper view of God. What He has done and who He is. It's theology. It's good theology matching our hearts and those two becoming entwined into a song that is lifted. Could it be that our worship, one of the problems we have with worship is that it's too often more focused on us? I'm not just talking about the words of songs. I'm talking about our own hearts and our own attitudes sometimes. That we would say things like, I'm not really feeling like worshiping today. I don't really like the song or the style. You know, my crisis and my circumstance for today is making it so I don't really want to sing. Hey, I want to make sure you understand that I get all of that. There are some songs that I just think should disappear. Like, should never be sung again. Most of them come on Christian radio. It's not a big fan. Right? There, there are times when I don't feel, I mean, I know I get paid to be here, but there are times where I don't want to come. There are mornings when I wake up and I'm just not feeling it. I get So I understand all of that. I get that. That's the weakness of who we are as frail humans. And I understand all of that, but this is what I want us to get back to. There's a real danger It's a real danger in the Christian life of too easily forgetting God's power. Of too easily forgetting His faithfulness. Of too easily forgetting His character. There's a real danger in us too easily forgetting He brought us through the Red Sea. He's good and He's faithful. And my current crisis and my current situation doesn't change that. My current feelings don't change who He is. They don't change His worth of being worshipped. Could it be that the one thing I need when I don't feel like worshiping is coming before the living God who gives me everything that I need, including the desire to worship Him? You know, He does provide for our every need. Maybe one of the needs He'll provide for is a heart to worship Him. Too often we'll we'll go away. We we won't want to be a part of it. I want to make sure you understand this. Let me me stop right here because I'll close with this point, but I want to make sure you get it, okay? We worship God and we worship God together for one another. Now, this is what I mean by that. You may have heard in your life this faulty notion about worship. And if you'll come on Sunday nights to the Is It Biblical, this might be one of the ones we cover. That when we sing, we sing for an audience of one. Maybe that's something you've heard. That we sing for God and for God alone. The only problem is the entire New Testament seems to say something different. The New Testament says things like this. Encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together. So I want to make sure you understand this. When you come through these doors, you're coming to worship God alone, but you're coming to worship with other people for other people. Why should you sing? Because God deserves it. Because the person next to you needs to be reminded that God deserves it. I need to be reminded that God deserves to be worshipped even in my circumstances and my crisis, even when I don't feel like it. 
You need to be reminded in those moments that God deserves to be worshipped. So we, we worship together so that we will not forget because it is easy to basically forget that God is our everything and that we can trust Him. That's what happens next. Look at the text. Moses, verse 22, made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So now they're leaving the Red Sea, the sight of all that God has just done in all of His glory, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And I want to make sure you understand this. This is God's plan for them to go through the wilderness. This was not disobedience that led them to the wilderness. That happens later. The 40 years through the wilderness thing, that happens later. This is God's plan to take them through the wilderness. This is how God's going to get them to the promised land is through the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord... And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. In other words, if you, will, if you won't forget who I am and what I've said, if you won't forget who I am and what I've said and what I've done, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, then I won't put you through everything I just put the Egyptians through. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Just verse 27, just real quick. God was not going to let them die in the wilderness. Elam was on the horizon. They went three days, and they got into crisis mode, and they immediately forgot the Red Sea. I don't know about you, but I get that. Been there. Like two weeks ago, right? Where you kind of get to that point and you're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? How come I'm in this crisis? Why aren't you providing for me? God, can you even do this? God, can you provide for me? God, why won't you provide for me? Do you love me? Do you hear me? It's really easy to go down that path, isn't it? To stop worshiping and start, start whining. Start wondering if God even hears our prayers, if God even loves us when we've forgotten what happened at the Red Sea. Psalm 106 speaks to this. It says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. They got to the Red Sea and they were like, Why would you bring us out here to kill us? Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea. It became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Next phrase. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test. In the desert, the rest of of Exodus is going to be them putting God to the test in the wilderness. Why? Because I hate to tell you, if you feel like you're in the wilderness right now, that's where most of the Christian life hangs out, if not all. It is really easy to worship when we see God working, when we're standing next to the Red Sea and we can see the chariots floating by. Really easy. But what happens when he leads us into the wilderness? Not by mistake, but by his design. 
Because most, if not all, of the Christian life happens in the wilderness. You see, redemption and ransom leads to sanctification, being made more like Jesus. He doesn't just rescue us. He makes us into what he wants us to be. And all of that seems to happen in the wilderness. The wilderness is God's designed place to drive us to trust him. So he takes them into the wilderness so that they will trust him. It's easy to trust God when you're standing next to the Red Sea after you've already been through. But three days with no water? Are you going to trust God? That's the test. See how quickly the people turned from worship of God for His character and His powerful victory to complaining to Moses about water. They, they came and basically accosted Moses. They were like, give us water. Where's our water? We don't have any water. How could God let us come out here and die? You're going to hear that over and over and over from these people forgetting God's provision. If he was going to let them die, the Red Sea would have been a great place for it to happen. But he wasn't going to let them die. He was going to provide for them. He was going to provide far more than they ever imagined. There was going to be streams of water for them. See how quickly they turn. See, here in the wilderness, the people needed to learn a couple of things. Their first mistake was this. They needed to learn to go to God, not to Moses. What's their reaction to no water? Hey, Moses, what shall we drink? They needed to remember. Moses was simply God's person to lead them. He is not God. I'm going to say this as plainly as I can. I love you. I want to serve you. I want to care for you. If, if I am leading you in such a way that you need me more than Jesus, I need to repent of that. And you need to repent of that. My whole desire is that you need Jesus and you run to Him. And I don't want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Run to Him. I will be there by you to serve you, to pray for you, but I cannot be God for you. I can't provide what you need. Only God can. And in the wilderness, God is, God is bringing us to that place of trusting Him. Not Moses, not, not our leaders. That was their first mistake. Their second mistake, their present crisis caused them to forget the past and promised provision of God. They just finished singing a song about how God was going to provide for them and how he had provided for them. And now they're like, why aren't you providing for us? They forgot. Their third mistake, their third mistake was their present crisis caused them to forget the power of God. Just think about this for just a second. It's really a cool scene. There's a log, throw it in, the water goes from bitter to sweet. That's, that's really neat. But I just want to go bigger than that. If there's one thing that they should have learned at the Red Sea that God can control, what would it be? Water. I mean, seriously. I'm pretty sure He can make this water do whatever He wants this water to do. But they go to Moses. And He says, throw the log in. I just think that's fascinating. It's a reminder. Hey, put your staff, hold up your staff, and I'm going to part the water. It's a reminder. I'm doing this work. A log doesn't change water into sweet water. God does that. Remind the people. God is going to provide for them, but they forgot. That was their third mistake. Their fourth mistake, their present crisis caused them to forget the most obvious of things, the presence of God. Don't forget this. There was a big pillar of cloud there. 
They got into the wilderness and they had three days with no water and they went, God has left us. He's leaving us out here to die. Big pillar of cloud. God has led us out here. He is with us. Don't forget that. It's so easy, isn't it? In the middle of the wilderness to forget that God is with us. To forget His power and His provision and His promises. To forget that He will not leave us alone, but He will never leave us or forsake us. This is the promise that He's made. Every believer, you see, this is really important for us because every single believer is in the wilderness. Even if right now you're in a moment of joy and a time of joy in your life, you're still in the wilderness. Because we're in the wilderness between being redeemed and ransomed and entering the promised eternal rest and joy that God has given us. We're in between the Red Sea and the Promised Land. We're no longer in Egypt. For those of us who have been ransomed and redeemed, we've come through the waters of the Red Sea, but we're not to the Promised Land yet. So where are we? We're in the wilderness, and this is where God works. This is where God makes us like Jesus. So let us not forget the powerful work of God. Let us not forget the character of our God. Let us not forget the joy of our salvation. Let us not forget the continuous provision of our God. And when we gather as a church, let us remind each other through our singing, through our praying, through our fellowship, and let's remind ourselves of God and His glorious goodness, and His character, His love, in His action toward us. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to close us out in a couple of songs as we prepare to go out with this message of hope to the world. And as they do, I want to, I want to read the words of a well-loved hymn from Fanny Crosby, Blessed Assurance. Just listen to these words. This is why we gather together, is to proclaim this truth to one another. So that if someone is here today and they're having a hard time, Remembering God's salvation, remembering His glory, remembering His goodness, remembering His provision. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. So in just a moment, when we're singing, we're singing a couple of other songs, I want you to sing with this heart. And with this mindset, for the person sitting next to you who may not find it real easy to sing, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Father, I pray now as we sing together, we would sing to You and for one another that we would not forget Your steadfast love, Your holiness, Your worth, Your glory, and Your splendor. That You are majestic in Your holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us.